God, I pray as we approach, Lord, a confusing and painful topic of divorce and remarriage, Lord, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would be our guide today. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us not only into truth, but into your grace. Lord, I pray for those uh, with whom this is a painful topic. God, I pray that you would especially minister to them this morning as we look at what you have to say about marriage, about divorce, and about remarriage. So God, give us wisdom. Lord, give us eyes to see this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, preaching on divorce and remarriage is challenging for a number of reasons. Uh, First, the normalization of divorce that has developed over the last several decades makes this a very challenging topic to confront. Uh, You're probably well aware of the statistics on marriage and divorce, that about 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce, depending on uh, on where you're getting your statistics. And the Christian marriage is not doing all that much better. And then the challenge comes when what's uh, normal out there or what has become normalized out there eventually bleeds into here. And it impacts our belief. It impacts our practice. Uh, for example, if you have a, a friend who's been divorced or a coworker or a neighbor uh, or a family member, uh, then chances are uh, you're going to become more familiar with the idea of divorce, maybe even become more numb to the concept of divorce and maybe wondering if this is okay. I think the collapse of the cultural parameters against divorce has left the church in serious need of fresh theological and biblical truth on this topic. In addition, I think another reason why this is a tough topic to approach uh, is despite the pain and the complications of divorce that has been experienced by nearly every single person, whether by firsthand experience or by just knowing someone who has gone through a divorce, despite all that, this topic in the church remains taboo. I think that this topic has been off limits to address for far too long as far as what does the Bible say about this topic. And so I think because very few of us have heard biblically sound and yet grace-saturated sermons on divorce and remarriage, I think there's great confusion in the church. I think when you combine the normalization of divorce out there along with this topic being somewhat taboo in here, the results is that we don't really know what to do with this topic of divorce and remarriage outside of a few verses, outside of maybe one or two verses that we feel fairly strong in, we're unsure of what to do with the nuances of divorce and remarriage when they come. For example, do you know how to answer the following questions? Why did Jesus sometimes say no to divorce and other times allow it? Why did Jesus allow divorce only for adultery while Paul allowed it for desertion? Why is remarriage equivalent to adultery in some cases? And what about situations concerning domestic abuse? Or what happens if a wife gets a divorce because of marital unfaithfulness that's been determined biblically legitimate grounds for that divorce? Is she then free to remarry? What if the husband repents? Is he free to remarry? Or can he only remarry his ex-wife? And what if she gets remarried? Does that change his obligation? 
Or consider this, what about a remarried couple who comes to realize that their divorce and remarriage was sinful? Are they committing adultery by staying married? If they stay married, what should they do to make things right? Can they become members in the church? Can they serve in the church? Can they become leaders in the church? Look, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of these kinds of unique scenarios with so many variables. And I think that we are in need of biblical understanding of this topic. Then another challenge uh, with talking about divorce and remarriage is the tendency for many of us to gravitate towards one of two extremes. The first extreme is to maybe take one or two verses and to turn it into blanket law that we then throw over every situation that involves divorce and remarriage. And while that seems easier, on one hand, it is very unwise. Rather, I think we should take biblical truth and apply it with a case-by-case approach as we consider the unique variables and nuances within each situation. Well, then the, the second extreme that we need to avoid, that we tend to gravitate towards, is to want to maybe avoid the plain meaning of the text on this topic, right? We want to almost justify divorce based on a given situation. And admittedly, there are confusing aspects to this topic, but I would argue that we must, we must allow God's word to be authoritative on this matter, not what's easiest for us, not what makes me happy, and not what the culture wants us to believe, Then, I think finally, another challenge, just to be frank with you this morning, um, is that this topic is very personal for me. One of the most impactful events in my life was my parents' divorce. The experiencing firsthand just the the devastating effects of divorce and, and the fact that even years later, we're still experiencing the ripple effect of that, it just makes this very personal for me. This is is very um, difficult to even preach on. And and I I feel very um, passionate about this topic and and have a a sense of of trying to warn us from going down the path of divorce. Just to be frank, I I hate divorce. I I hate what it's done to to my family. I hate the fact that sin is, is so destructive and it very rarely stays in one area of our lives. And I know that for many of us, you feel the same way. For, for many of us, you have experienced the pain of divorce in your own life and, and even how hard this is to kind of think through and, and even to approach texts like 1 Corinthians 7 without wincing a little bit. And so because that's true, all the more I think we need to approach this topic with the objective guidance from God's word. What does God's word have to say about this topic And we're going to save uh, verses 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to save that for the end of chapter 7, where Paul deals extensively with singleness um, and and widows. And we're going to walk through verses 10 through 16. And we're going to use this passage to address what I think are five common myths of divorce and remarriage. Because I think this topic is is so confusing on one hand. I want to see what these, what these verses have to say about common myths related to divorce and remarriage. All right, let's look at myth number one. We hear this often, is that divorce is permitted 
when you fall out of love, right? This is a very common belief. You hear couples who are pursuing divorce, they will say something to the effect that, man, my life is miserable. And I know God doesn't want me to be miserable. God wants me to be happy. So therefore divorce is acceptable. Or you'll hear something like, man, we are just fighting all of the time. This can't possibly be good for the kids. You know, we're just two roommates under the same roof. Or my spouse has changed. This is no longer the person that I married. Therefore, I can pursue divorce. And I think that kind of thinking is rooted in the belief that the purpose of marriage is for your personal happiness, right? This, this myth is, is grounded in the idea that marriage exists for me. It's to achieve the, the, this dream that I have. It's this spouse exists for my comfort and for my benefit rather than understanding the purpose of marriage from God's standpoint. So what does the Bible say about this myth? Well, verses 10 through 13 speak into this. Now, before we look at these verses, I think it's important to understand what these verses mean in light of the Corinthian context before we apply it to today. Paul is addressing a specific issue here in Corinth, namely that they were now rejecting marriage on the grounds that the new age that is to come doesn't involve marriage. We're not going to be giving each other over into marriage when the new age comes. And so to be very spiritual, according to the Corinthians, is to live in the new age in full, to fully realize all that is to come. So we're going to avoid marriage now. That's what it means to be super spiritual. We saw the implications of this over the last couple of weeks as it relates to sexual immorality. Well, you can see some of their logic here, thinking that the body is of no value, that the only thing that matters is the soul and developing the spiritual life. Therefore, you can do whatever you want with your body, including sleeping with prostitutes. You can see how that line of logic can impact all of these marriages in Corinth. So starting in verse 10, Paul addresses this issue. He first begins with a married couple in which both spouses are believers. And he says this, he says, um, not I, but the Lord. Now, what Paul is saying there is he is now leaning on what Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, has already said on the matter of divorce. Jesus has already spoken into this from Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 19. We'll look at those passages in a moment. And so Paul is leaning on Jesus's authoritative word on the matter. And he says this, he says, the wife should not separate from her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. It's very clear, All right? You move on even to verses 12 through 13. Paul now addressing married couples in which one spouse is a Christian and the other spouse is not, or the fact that they're unequally yoked, Paul says, I, not the Lord, just referring to the fact that Jesus did not specifically address marriages that were unequally yoked. And so Paul now is speaking to this still under the authority and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But Paul says the same thing. Do not divorce one another. Very clear on the matter related to divorce. Now you'll notice that Paul uses the word separate in verse 10 and then he uses the, the word divorce in verses 11, 12, 
and 13, but there's no significant difference here. Even though there is in our day, that distinction between separation and divorce did not exist in Paul's day. In fact, the the day in which Paul wrote, you could legalize your divorce by way of documentation, by way of different documents, but more often than not, divorce just kind of happened, right? Divorce was divorce, whether established by documents or not, where the husband would have documentations and would just send the wife away, or, and this was the more popular route, either spouse would just leave. They would just desert the other, either the the wife or the husband, and they would separate from one another. Now, another interesting thing about this time period is that the husband had almost all of the power. The, The husband could divorce his wife for nearly any reason and it be acceptable, all right? So this is, this is a little bit countercultural for Paul to actually first address the wife and then the husband in verse 10, but it's even more countercultural for Paul during this time to stress the fact that divorce should not occur. I think Paul corrects the common myth today that you can get divorced for nearly any reason, You can get divorced if you fall out of love or if your spouse doesn't make you happy anymore or if your spouse has changed. Paul wants us to understand the sacredness of marriage. In fact, throughout the New Testament, the biblical principle is that marriage is sacred and is intended to be permanent. And the New Testament is clear on this. If you look at Mark chapter 10, verses two through 10, we notice that the Pharisees have an extensive conversation with Jesus on the matters of divorce, and they are trying to trap Jesus. Notice what this says, starting in verse two. It says, and the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, Jesus, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He, Jesus, answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, if you notice in this extensive conversation Jesus has with the Pharisees, the Pharisees are wanting to talk about acceptable reasons for a divorce. Jesus wants to talk about the sacredness of marriage. The Pharisees want to talk about what are the outs to getting out of marriage. And yet Jesus wants to hold up marriage for what it is in God's eyes. That's why Jesus quotes from Genesis here from the very beginning in talking about God's intention for marriage. Jesus does not reject Moses's teaching here. He just recasts it, that he's saying that divorce is a concession for human sin, but it's not required. It's not even God's intention, that Jesus is clear here. And again, Paul writing on the authority of Jesus, that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. The two become one flesh because marriage is a sacred union that God himself joins the couple together 
And what God puts together, let no one separate. Look, when you look at what Jesus and throughout the New Testament has to say about divorce, you can boil it down to this. Don't do it. Avoid divorce at all cost. It's not God's intention for marriages to dissolve. It's not, if you're married, it's not what you promised before the Lord to your spouse. And before we look at anything else this morning, I want us to feel the weight of this today. I want us to understand God's intention for marriage is for life. That's his heart for marriage. God hates divorce and he wants us to avoid it at all costs. Whatever exceptions there may be, the main thing is that marriage is intended to be permanent. Back in 2019, our church, we went through a marriage initiative of sorts And we had dozens and dozens and dozens of married couples kind of go through this curriculum called the Re-Engage Curriculum. And uh, and it was a very instrumental time in our church where we kind of went back to the basics and looked at some basic marriage principles. And one of the ideas there in that book was to view marriage as a house. And as you're living in your marriage with your spouse in this house, you have to, both spouses have to come to the conclusion that we are going to lock the back door that we are not going to leave that back door to leaving the marriage. We're not going to have that back door unlocked. We're not going to crack it open for any reason. We're not going to have this thought in the back of our minds that if my spouse does A, B, and C, I'm out of here. Or if my spouse doesn't do A, B, and C, I'm out of here. But we lock the back door, we lock the front door, and we close and we lock all of the windows. Marriage is meant to be for life. All right, that's myth, myth number one. And in, in look, looking at our passage, correcting that, here's myth number two and how our passage speaks into this. Remarriage is permitted for any divorcee, any divorcee. Now, verse 11, again, the Bible speaks into this. Paul clearly says that the wife who separates from her husband is not free to remarry. All right, again, Paul says this on the authority of Jesus who has previously addressed this in Matthew 19, where Jesus says in verse nine, Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. All right, Jesus is clear here that remarriage should not occur where there is an unbiblical divorce. And Jesus gives one example of what a, a biblically permitted divorce looks like where there is marital unfaithfulness, all right? So a divorcee can remarry if there has been marital unfaithfulness, but not every divorcee can remarry. Uh, another example of a divorcee that can remarry comes from our passage here in verse 15. You'll notice that phrase Paul uses for the spouse who has been deserted He uses the phrase, is not enslaved. Paul's saying here that this spouse who's been deserted is free not only of that marriage, but is also free to remarry. Now, this would have been the the default Jewish position at the time, and it seems to be the same idea that's clearly communicated in verse 39, that upon the death of her husband, Paul says, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. 
Okay, so, so there are these two scenarios. You've got marital unfaithfulness. You've got desertion. Uh, you also have the idea of, of your spouse dying so a widow can remarry. But remarriage is biblically permissible where divorce is biblically permissible, not for anyone who has been divorced. In fact, Paul gives two options for those who have um, been divorced on unbiblical grounds. He says you can remain single or you can reconcile with your former spouse. Those are the only two options that Paul lays out here for an unbiblical divorce. Now, in situations in which an unbiblical divorce has occurred, followed by an unbiblical remarriage, the counsel would not then be for you to become divorced, right? So three wrongs do not make a right. The counsel would be to stay married, repent of any known sin, make amends wherever is necessary, and to remain as you are. In fact, that's actually one of the key themes throughout chapter seven, Paul stresses again and again to remain as you are, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're divorced or widow, Paul wants us to stay as we are, something we'll unpack in coming weeks. All right, now myth number three here, I think this passage addresses is that divorce is the automatic response to marital unfaithfulness. Now, our passage doesn't specifically and explicitly address this in our passage, but I'm gonna connect this myth to verses 14 and 16. Once again, I wanna highlight what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 9, that divorce is biblically allowed where there is marital unfaithfulness. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Okay, I wanna stress this on the front end that sexual sin breaks the marriage covenant because sex is the oath signing of the covenant. That having sexual experiences with someone that's not your spouse is like trying to sign on someone else's dotted line. Okay, it breaks the covenant and is a ground for divorce. I wanna be clear on that on the front end. At the same time, divorce is still not required in those scenarios. It is only allowed. In other words, marriage is so sacred and divorce is so hated by God that even in the devastating and painful situations like infidelity, the call for that spouse is still to forgive and to seek reconciliation with your spouse. That's plan A. And again, not minimizing the sin of infidelity at all, but everything in the scriptures overwhelmingly points us to and emphasizes us to avoid divorce at all cost. And look, I say that this morning knowing full well that there are some in this room, maybe some online where you have experienced or are experiencing the pain of your spouse being unfaithful to you. And I do not say this lightly. Look, there, there is an image in my mind that I will never forget. When my mom, was standing right next to her, found out about my dad's infidelity and she just crumbled to the ground in physical pain and agony. I'll, I'll never forget that picture. I'll never forget the, even 
The following months, her extend forgiveness to him multiple times, give him multiple chances, and the powerful display of the gospel. That was to me. And so look, I know if you are going through something like this, that the call to forgive your spouse is maybe the most difficult assignment God will give you, but I firmly believe that spouses who go through this, I think that they throw in the towel too early and I think they walk away from their marriage way too soon. That God can restore any broken marriage because of his grace. When both spouses are surrendering themselves to the Lord, God can make all things new. Look, I know the pain is great. I know trust is broken, but don't underestimate the power of God and his grace and the fact that he's writing your story in your marriage for his glory and for your good. I also just want to say that if you're in a situation right now where you're considering divorce, I just want to warn you that divorce is not the easy route. Don't believe that lie that I just want to get rid of this marriage or this pain or this confusion. I'm going to pursue divorce down this road. No, no, no. Divorce is just as painful, maybe more painful and way more confusing with ripple effects literally for the rest of your life. Now I say all that, but at the same time, when the spouse is unrepentant and when the erosion of trust is too profound. The Bible does allow divorce to occur when there has been infidelity after much prayer, counsel from others, and a concerted effort to work through issues. The Bible does allow it. Now, the way that this connects to verses 14 and 16 is because if you notice, Paul is in the midst of addressing marriages that are unequally yoked. All right, you've got one spouse is a believer, the other spouse is not, and if you notice what, what Paul tells them to do, he wants, the un, he wants the believing spouse to remain in the marriage. Think about that for a moment. All right, think about being married to someone who opposes God, who opposes the church, opposes biblical values. Paul is exhorting them, maybe exhorting some who are here today in that situation, to not terminate the marriage. So therefore, how much more when you have two spouses who are believers, where yes, there's been infidelity, but where there's repentance and a commitment for change, how much more for two spouses who claim to be Christ's followers to remain in the marriage, right? For God's glory and for the good of your salvation. And I think the reason Paul encourages this, if you look at verses 14 and 16, he says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let me pause here for my need to explain a few things. We know that Paul is against being unequally yoked with a believer and an unbeliever. Second Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18 even uh, uniting yourself sexually with a prostitute, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. So while Paul is against knowingly uniting yourself with an unbeliever, the situation Paul is addressing here has to do with people who are already married 
and one in which that marriage should not be broken, should not be terminated. All right, the likely scenario here in Corinth that Paul is addressing is that two individuals who weren't saved got married, and then one of the spouses heard the gospel and accepted the gospel and is currently married. So how can, how can God redeem that? Paul says by staying married. Why? It's because that unbelieving spouse now has a front row seat at the power of the gospel being lived out by his or her spouse and can now see why Jesus is so compelling. This is why I think Paul, this is what Paul means, I think, when he talks about the unbelieving spouse is made holy. Now, Paul does not mean that the unbelieving spouse is saved or their behavior is now holy because of the believing spouse. That would contradict clear passages throughout the scriptures. But holy can mean to be set apart from the world. And so what Paul is saying here is that that unbelieving spouse is set apart from the world through the marriage with a believing spouse in the hope that they will become saved that they're now positioned in an environment that's different from the world, that's set apart from the world, where they can see Jesus being lived out on a daily basis. I think this echoes what Paul uh, has said in 1 Peter chapter 3, where he's encouraging the wife uh, of an unbelieving husband to stay in the marriage and win them to Christ. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband's so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. All right? So again, I want us to understand this. This exhortation by Paul given to the believing spouse to stay married with an unbelieving spouse, how much more should two spouses who are believers who are working through infidelity stay married? Again, not trying to minimize the immense pain and struggle of infidelity, but divorce should not be the automatic response in these scenarios. That through prayer, through forgiveness, through repentance, through counsel, God can use the worst kind of brokenness for your good, to redeem your marriage, for the good of others who might be walking through this years down the road, and for glory do his name. Myth number four here. We've got two more here in this passage. Myth number four is that divorce is only uh, permitted for infidelity. All right, Th this is something that I think needs to be addressed uh, because far too often we think that adultery is the only cause biblically for divorce. But Paul seems to be adding another one. In verse 15, he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, again, we should try to live at peace with an unbelieving spouse. After all, God could use you to lead to the salvation of your spouse. Like reconciliation is still the ideal but Paul says, if the unbeliever refuses to live with you and leaves, let them do so. He says, you're not bound to be married when your unbelieving spouse deserts you. Now, I think we need to be careful with this word separates or 
can be translated um, uh, um, desert or abandon because it ha- it's taken on various meanings today. I think what is clear is that the believer is not called to initiate divorce unless their spouse has deserted, abandoned, separated from, or seeks the termination of the marriage, then divorce is permitted. Okay, now this could refer to physical desertion where the spouse is literally gone. He's literally, he or she has literally left. But this could also refer to deserting the necessary responsibilities of a spouse that Exodus and Deuteronomy lays out there, the, the providing food and clothing and, and living conditions. I think that this could also be applied to repeated abuse in the marriage. This could be applied to uh, addiction to drugs. This could uh, be applied to complete disengagement where the church has stepped in, has performed Matthew 18 here, has identified this is an unbeliever, not repenting of sin, and the church gives counsel of what to do next. I've heard a Bible preaching church who exercised church discipline and used 1 Corinthians 7.15 to allow divorce in the scenario where the spouse was playing video games 18 hours a day in the basement. And they qualified that after church discipline said, this is an unbeliever who has deserted the spouse. And so again, I wanna stress this as well. We, we must have a case-by-case approach where we consider the, the countless variables and the different situations that might arise within divorce and even remarriage. But I think the biblical principle here is that divorce is biblically permissible beyond adultery as to include when an unbeliever who has deserted the other spouse. Now you notice in verse 15, Paul says, you need to allow peace to govern these situations. I think what he means by that is if your unbelieving spouse wants that divorce and wants to leave, you don't force or fight that. And then secondly, in the divorce process, not to create unnecessary disturbances. All right, now number five here, the fifth myth, and I'm gonna close with this this morning, is that divorce is the unforgivable sin. I wanna close with this because I think especially in the church, there is a stigma against people who have been divorced, whether for biblical grounds or not, and that the church has indirectly or directly added to the pain of those who have walked through divorce. And look, I just wanna say this morning, if you have personally experienced maybe a misjudgment on your experience with divorce, if you have experienced maybe being ostracized by the church or by other believers, look, I just wanna say on behalf of the church, on behalf of other Christians, I am sorry. I am sorry that you have experienced that. I I in no way have a vision of our church being that kind of place, but I want our church to be a place that is safe, that is a source of healing for, for marriages that are struggling, for people who are going through divorce or who have gotten divorced. The church should be that safe place where we are massaging into their souls the grace that is found in Jesus. I want you to know that Divorce in no way is beyond the grace and the forgiveness that God can extend. And for those who have had biblical grounds for divorce, I want you to hear this this morning, that in no way 
does that now put you in the God can't use you category among his people? In fact, I think it's just the opposite that you have walked through the valley. You have the scars of deep pain. You've experienced the depth of God's comfort and grace. You can benefit the church and others who might be walking through that same valley. So I want you to know God can and desires to use you. And for those who have divorced unbiblically, maybe you've remarried unbiblically, maybe you're wondering, what's next for me? Can God use me? And I want you to know, absolutely. This is not the unforgivable sin. Yes, it is serious. Yes, necessary, clear demonstration of repentance is needed. Yes, it will take time. But God can redeem this. That God in his boundless grace can use even this for your good and his glory. And look, for those who are married right now, man, let me plead with you as your pastor to fight for your marriage. Fight for your marriage. Do not give up. Do whatever is necessary in order to guard your marriage, in order to invest in your marriage, in order to pursue your spouse. And look, keep running to the gospel. Keep coming back to this well that will not run dry, the gospel where it holds everything that you need, grace and patience and love and service. That is the place that God has given to you for you to run to in order to be the spouse that God has called you to be. And for you to allow your marriage to be centered on the power and the grace found in the gospel when both spouses are dying to themselves, when they're loving sacrificially, when they're serving each other, they are displaying God's love for his people to a watching world. And that is the purpose of marriage. That marriage is not designed for your happiness It's not designed to achieve the American dream. It's not for your comfort. It's not all of those things. It's to display God's love for his people to a watching world. And that only happens when you personally, you and your spouse are filled up with all that Jesus is as he has given you everything you need to have a healthy marriage. And so look, if you're struggling in your marriage, we as the church, we would love, love, to walk alongside you in this journey and in all that God has for you. You are not alone. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of marriage. God, we thank you so much, Lord, for the safety that we can find when we commit ourselves to one another. We make a covenant with someone and we say, look, you're gonna see all of my mess. You're gonna see all of my sin And yet, I trust that you're not leaving, I'm not leaving. God, I pray for the marriages in this room. I pray, God, that you would, Lord, deepen our love for Jesus, that you would help us to fight for our marriages, to, Lord, to be able to guard our marriages against sin, against things from the outside world. Lord, I pray for those who are, Lord, considering divorce for for unbiblical reasons. Lord, I pray that you would convict that you, by your Spirit, would turn them right now in this moment, that you would show them that so much is, on, is at stake. God, I pray that you would continue to, to um, Lord, bring health to our marriages. 
And Lord, that you would give us grace to do that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.